I want to say I had a, a really good discussion um, with Don during the break. And, you know, one of the things when you do public speaking is it's always interesting what you're saying and what, what people might be hearing. And sometimes what you, maybe what you didn't say or you, whatever it is. Anyway, um, but I do just want to say this again so that you don't think this American dude came down and he said this. And I didn't actually say that. <laughs> So just a, just clarification to say this. Look, I said it last night, but it bears repeating because it's so important. Uh, and that is, substitutionary atonement is an incredible part of the gospel message. I'm not saying that. I'm saying the way in which it can be told, the way in which it can be communicated and did catch on because it was such an effective way to get people to make a decision, it became the dominant normative way to talk about substitutionary atonement, became a way that actually pulled people away from the gospel of life in the kingdom and left people thinking that God was really mad, like always and forever really mad. And I was just saying, there's a way to talk about the atonement and the substitutionary nature of what Christ has done where we don't have to say that God's mad and we don't have to say that it doesn't include the kingdom because it does. Remember I said last night, atonement in my little corny thing, at one meant. At one minute, it's God's way of being, becoming one with us. And a part of that is to deal with the issue of our guilt and our shame that comes from the brokenness of sin. So Christ is the Son of God who died for our sins, and only Christ could have done it. He wasn't merely a good guy or a fantastic teacher who had a nice message. He was God who died, who shed his blood, the Lamb of God, who took away the sin of the world, and on the cross, the finality of the cross, dealt with sin, past, present, and future for all time, so that no longer are we alienated from God on the basis of our sin. I remember one night I was having dinner with Dallas, and we were talking about this aspect of the atonement, and he just had a throw-off line during dinner. Thank God I had a napkin so I could write it down. He said, well, James, it's a wonderful thing that God is no longer dealing with us on the basis of our sins. Think on that one. God is no longer dealing with us on the basis of our sins, and that's because of the cross. Because he is the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. And, that's, and therefore, because of the cross, he's not dealing with you and I on the basis of that. It's not he loves me, he loves me not, based on my sin or lack thereof. He's dealt with that. Jesus died for all of your sins, past, present, and the ones you haven't committed. And that's what the cross did. And that's really, really good news. It is, in fact, amazing grace. Because if it was just pretty good grace, it'd be a lousy hymn. Oh, pretty good grace, how okay the sound that saved a not-so-great person like me. I once was a little bit out of whack, but you came and gave me some advice. No, it's, it's amazing grace that God did for us what we could never do for ourselves. So if you leave this and think, he said that it's about the kingdom and Jesus is a good teacher about being, it's about social justice, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, when we think about atonement, you have to understand there are many aspects of the atonement. One aspect of the atonement is penalty substitution. It's a beautiful part of it, 
But that's only one. Because Jesus isn't just a victim, he's also victor. Which is one of the things I appreciate about our Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters who celebrate not Christ as victim, but Christ as victor. And that's a big shift, really. It is a big shift because in Roman Catholic churches, you have the crucifix, you have Jesus. We're really looking at the suffering, and that's true. It's not untrue. But you go into Orthodox churches, and you have to, if you're going to find Jesus, you've got to look straight up. And there he is with the key row in his hand saying, I rule this thing. The Pantocrator, the ruler of all things. Christ is the victor. N.T. Wright, um, in his book, On the Day the Revolution Began, that's a wonderful book. But N.T. Wright gives this incredible illustration when he says this. On what we call what happened on around 6 o'clock, on what we call Good Friday, a revolution began. A revolution of love when there was a coronation of a king. It's a very different way of looking at the cross, isn't it? The cross was the coronation of the king who's the king of the kingdom. And he reconciled us through his blood. All of those wonderful verses are there. He put an end to the sacrificial system, which the epistle to Hebrews does beautifully. So, again... Not down on public cisternary PSA. <laughs> it's a mouthful. I'm not, yeah. It's just how do we how are we going to tell it? And can we still include that without it excluding the gospel of life in the kingdom? And then on top of that, to say that this business of Christianity isn't merely a social justice enterprise. That's not what it's about exclusively. Um, it, it is. It includes that, but it is. It is more than that. Um, so that's, uh, well, in the words of Forrest Gump, that's about all I have to say about that. Uh, during the break and, and uh, wonderful little brief conversations with people, but uh, Ivan, do you, do you pronounce it Davies or David, Davies? Davies, Ivan Davies. Uh, fascinating work that he does. Um, he's a part of a, one of the largest video games in the world called... Um, League of Legends, 100 million people played this game. And uh, that's big, kind of. <laughs> and, um, but what Ivan is doing, what God's called him to do, and what we were talking about, if, you know, what, what, what kingdom thing can you do, is, is to see if there's a way that you can use that to help give people some life skills, get a message of love, uh, a uh, that message of, of freedom and hope. And he's doing that, right? And I just said to him during the break, I said, man, I feel like I'm, I'm Wesley to your Wilberforce. I got to encourage you, man, because you're up against a lot. And the, and the business world that he's in, they don't see the value in that. So, you know, there's the challenge, right? And, and anytime I, you talk about a vision to do something, let it be big. God is able to do greater than we can ask or imagine. So let's, let's go big. And Ivan is going big. And when I said, man, you're like Wilberforce, and what he said, I, love, I wrote this down, he said, if we're living in the kingdom, we're all Wilberforces. Isn't that good? If we're living in the kingdom, we're all, we are. It's really, it's fantastic to be a part of that together, this kingdom conspiracy. And um, I do believe what I said before we broke for our, our uh, 
the T thing that you do, that uh, something's afoot here, something's going on, and I'm really grateful for um, my brothers who are making this a reality, and, uh, and thank you for that. that. That's Johnny and Andy, you two. What's that? And sisters, no kidding, lots of sisters, lots of people. It's a team of people. That's what I was saying uh, before the break as well. Get good people, and you guys have done that. You've gotten really good people around you. All right, well, I want to talk about living into the rhythms of grace a little bit and then see if there's anything that you want to share as we're closing down. Um, but I do feel called before I, st- I talk about that, one thing that I felt, and this was, you know, I appreciated Sarah having the courage in, in her talk to say that, you know, here's what, uh, something that I sensed. And I felt the same way, that I, I want to just say a word, about, um, a word about worry. Worry is epidemic in our world today, and certainly Christians are not immune. But I just want to say this, that Jesus says in the Sermon on, on the Mount, he says these words, Therefore I tell you, do not worry. To which the answer is, are you kidding me? That's all I do. What do you, well, come on, Jesus. Therefore, don't worry. I mean, are you serious? Is that some sort of a grandiose little statement? We'll put it on a poster. I don't know what I'll do with that. Do you mean it? He means it. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. And that is because worry doesn't accomplish anything. Worry is just superstition. That's all it is. That's why when Jesus says, therefore I tell you don't worry, and he even asks the question, who can you know, add an inch to your height or more hair to your head or whatever it is you want to do, you, you, right, it doesn't do anything. And that's what he was getting at. Worry does, actually doesn't accomplish anything, but it is very destructive because what worry does is it, it pushes God out of the picture and we're on our own. And it leads to all kinds of actual health problems. So the medical community has kind of gotten into it and said, yeah, these people who have chronic issues with worrying, it actually, they suffer physically because of it. So it doesn't do anything positive and it does a lot of things negatively. But it is superstition. So it's not, it's not unlike, um, you know, rabbit's foot feet or whatever people have these superstitions. They think, you see, the reason that we worry is because we want to have some measure of control. Worry provides the illusion that I have some control. So something we're concerned about happens. Right? Something's going on at work or with our family. And we, and we start worrying about it. And we worry and we worry and we worry and we worry. And then it doesn't happen. And then we think, what a good little worrier am I? I'm an excellent worrier. I just worried that problem away. No, you didn't. <laughs> it didn't do anything. That's why I say it's superstition. It creates the illusion. That's why athletes do weird things. I'm not going to change my socks. Or whatever. Actually, that's not helping you. But you think it is, right? In the same thing, we think worrying is doing something, but it actually doesn't do it. Do a thing. And so that's why uh, I, I talk about the secret to living deep into the kingdom are these three little words. In the kingdom. That's where we live. We live in the kingdom. So anything you hear Jesus teach about, therefore I tell you, don't be angry. And you go, no chance. Well, you can. 
You can obey that, but not outside the kingdom you can. You're going to need the power and protection and provision of the kingdom in order to be the kind of person who doesn't get angry or lust or judge or retaliate. Any of Jesus' great teachings, you can't do them without being in the kingdom, and worry is certainly one of them. So I wanted to just say that before um, we close because I suspect that worry is a big problem for some of you. It's a problem for all of us, of course. I'm not excluding everyone. We, we wrestle with it. That's why Jesus had to teach on it because it's a, it's a part and parcel, a big part of human life, and he understood that. But we want to, to recognize that. Now, there is one caveat I want to say, and that is um, when Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, that doesn't mean just sort of walk blindly through your life. And I think of what C.S. Lewis said uh, in his essay on prayer. Uh, he said, Look, if you have weeds in your garden, don't pray about it. Pluck them up. Don't pray about them. Pluck them up. What does that mean? What Lewis is getting at is there are things that we just do. We just do. And you do those things. Worries what happens after you've done what you can do. So we do what we can do, and we trust in that. And then we recognize worry doesn't do anything positive, so I'm just going to let that go. No need to worry about it because it's not going to do any good. It does absolutely nothing. But you do still do what you do. I trust in kingdom provision, but I still wear a seatbelt. And I have insurance. (laughs) And there's a lot of things that we do. You just do that, right? So I, I, I often think about worry and weeds. You know, I put those two together. If they're weeds, do something about that. You can do something about that. But for everything else, you just now you put your trust in the kingdom and, um, and you don't worry about it, certainly, because it doesn't do anything positive. All right. Well, um, Graham earlier alluded to this idea, uh, this question. It's a question Dallas would often ask groups of people. Who burns or uses or needs more grace, sinners or saints? Who needs more grace? Who burns more grace? Utilizes it? Sinners or saints? Now, the the obvious temptation is to think, well, obviously sinners do because they're just they have so much sin they need more grace, and that's again limiting grace to this idea that it's just unmerited forgiveness. But really, if you think about it, most sinners aren't leaning into that very much at all. They're not even they haven't even turned to God even to ask for forgiveness. So if you think that's what it is. But uh, grace is, is, um, is God's action in our life. So let me just give a definition of that. Uh, grace is, equals gift. Grace, the, the word charis uh, means gift. So by nature, grace means something that you can't earn. You can't earn it. So right at the very heart of the understanding of the word grace, you can't earn it. And that certainly is going to include forgiveness of sins. You can't earn that. But God has given that. That's one, of, one aspect of grace. But grace is the larger definition I have there. Grace is God's action toward us and within us. And grace is happening all of the time. If grace is gift, unmerited, unearned, and grace is God's action, then everything that we're doing is an interaction with grace. So when God speaks to us, encourages us, feeds us, inspires us, chastens us, you name it, in that with God life we've been talking about, that life in Christ we've been talking about, is a life of grace. 
where God's interactively working with us, sustaining, providing, whatever that is that we need. In fact, Wesley uh, was famous for using the phrase means of grace, and he talked about prayer, fasting, study, and worship. And those were four that were really important to Wesley. He did other disciplines, but uh, he would say those are means of grace or channels of grace, ways that grace can move into, into our lives. And that's where you get that statement of Dallas is that saints burn grace like a 747 burns jet fuel on takeoff. Because every single day, those who are living deep into the kingdom are constantly relying on grace, constantly opening themselves up to more and more grace. And a word I really like, it's a word that comes from photography, actually, is the word aperture. So the aperture is that which opens up to let light in. And I often think about, I want to increase my aperture for grace. I want to live my life in such a way that I've really widened that so that more and more grace can come in. And that means I have to rely more and more on God. And that's why in our last session, try something big. What would you do if you, if you, if you knew you couldn't lose? What would you try? And of course, God isn't calling us to succeed. He is just calling us to try. Uh, but what is that? You know, what's that vision? And if it's big, you just, your, your aperture for grace has to open wider for more and more of that to become a reality. I'm really blessed that I have a person in my life. He's been a close friend for the past 12 years. And um, he's an exceedingly brilliant guy on many, many levels. But we get together every few months, and he'll just say, so what are you and God doing together, Jim? I love that phrase. What are you and God doing together? And almost every time when I start describing what God and I are doing together, he'll say, I think you should dream bigger. I love that because it's, it's, it's not selfish, right? I'm not, trying, you know, I'm, not, I'm not building the kingdom of Jim. That's an empire of dust, as Johnny Cash said. That means nothing. You get to the end of your life, none of that matters. No, it doesn't matter, right? It, I mean, think about what people put on their resumes. And like on our resume, I'm going to tell you all the great things that I did. So there's the, there's the resume kind of virtues where we get all the letters and degrees and accomplishments and this and that. But you know what? No one ever reads our resume at, a, at our funerals. What do they say at our eulogies? It's never the resume stuff. It's never, he made a ton of money. Just want to share that at his funeral. It's never, she had really great teeth. Just never say that. (laughs) They just say, it was good, it was kind, he was loving, he was merciful, he was forgiving, he trusted God, he was a great father, whatever it was, right? Because ultimately we know that that's the life that we're designed to live. And we kind of want to live into those, those eulogy virtues, not the resume virtues. So I'm not talking about building certain kinds of kingdoms for ourselves, but you want to widen the aperture of grace so that God's power, that's God's grace, God's action, can step alongside with you and do things that are far beyond what you could do. That's how you know you're working with God's grace, because the results are incommensurate with the effort. The results far exceed the effort. That's how you know it's grace. 
our feeble little efforts, we try little things, and then grace steps in and, and the, the results far exceed the effort. And that's really the grace of God, the kindness of God, the mercy of God to say, I'm going to work through that little person. And they've got this, big, this vision going on and I'm going to do something fantastic through them. And I can only do as much as they're going to rely on my grace to do it. So, if in fact this, is, is, this whole business is to open the aperture to receive more of God's grace in our lives, then we have to, have to ask, well, what are the means that we do that? What are the things that we do uh, to do that? And this, these would be classically what we would call maybe the spiritual disciplines, or I don't prefer that term, I would say uh, disciplines for life in the spirit. Um, but those are things that we do in order to do things that we can't do. That's probably the best definition of a spiritual exercise or disciplines for the spiritual life. They're things that enable us to do what we can't do on our own. Now, so what does that mean? First of all, there are things we can do. And, and Sarah listed a few things like Sabbath and contemplation and solitude. You can do those. And in case you're wondering, we're like, you can do them and, they, and you're not going to die. You know, I tried that and it just about killed me. No, you can do it. You don't have to be heroic about it. Dom John Chapman always said with the, the, the important thing to remember with any practice is do what you can, not what you can't. So, you know, the, the class that Dallas and I taught for years uh, when I was a teaching assistant for that decade uh, just about every year there would be somebody who came to the class trying to do some heroic fast. Seriously, just about every year there was somebody who would say, they're going to fast for two weeks. And, then, and Dallas would always go, um, James, you should talk to him. So that was always my assignment. I'd have to walk alongside these blokes, as you would say, you almost always guys. And I said, so why are you doing that? Well, you know, and they'd tell me why they were doing it. And I'd just sort of stay with them. And I would say, Let's, why are you doing it? What's, what are you hoping to gain? What's, what's, what's going on behind that? See, because if you, do, if you do a fast in a situation like that, you're also knocking out fellowship, which is where most, you know, at the meals is where people connect. So, so I would just sit there. And more often than not, it would be my encouragement after a certain number of days, I would encourage them to stop. And they would be like, who are you telling me to stop? Well, you're not, it's not doing any good because you're doing it for the wrong reason. So you have to understand why do you do any practice that you do. And then if it's to open the aperture so you can receive more of God's grace uh, to change your heart and make you an, an all-new kind of person, well, then that's a good thing. And it may include fasting, and it may include a more heroic fast. It may, but only you could know that. I mean, no one else can know that for you. And that's why I would journey with these folks to sort of listen. And it's really, it was spiritual direction is basically what I was doing. But trying to be with the person and discern what's going on with that practice. But all of these practices are ways in which we create space for God. And I really like that, that uh, definition. Uh, I have, it's at the bottom of that screen there. Uh, Doug Postima was the first I heard coin that phrase. They just, they just create space for God. That's what they do. They place us before God, Richard Foster would say. 
Um, they're therapeutic. They're healing. There are lots of practices that we do. And we do them um, with the intention that we are asking God to be with us and shape us and change us. Uh, I'm glad Sarah mentioned Sabbath because for me, Sabbath is, is, and I think we've heard the phrase, I think you might have used it today, but it's non-negotiable, just a non-negotiable for me. And, and that's because it's, well, first of all, it's, it is in the Ten Commandments, like it's not a suggestion. So it's, it's a commandment. But there's a reason for it because God has designed us in such a way that that's how we're, we're meant to live. You know that phrase, 24-7? Yeah, let that one go. 24-6. Let's substitute it for 24-6. That's how I want to live my life. I don't want to be on for 24-7. God in his commandment said, no, 24-7. That's a surefire way to wreck your life. So all of the practices, prayer, solitude, I mean, all of these things, are, and you, you want to learn how to live into the rhythm of them and learn from it. I mean, I mentioned fasting earlier, and it was several years ago when I became more and more aware of how uh, the larger issues, particularly because uh, I teach at the, at the university, um, how issues with food for people are, are it, it's, it's, well, I just put it this way. I don't recommend food fast in my classes. I don't do it anymore. I do technology fast. We, we, we do 48 hours off the grid. That's the fasting I think is more important in this world today. Now, if you say, I do food fasting, Jim, that's good. And I still do food fasting. I do various ones. You know, I'll do miss meals and do things and use that as a way to connect with God. But you have to look and say, what's the practice going to do for me? And I, I knew fairly early on that, that doing fast from media was important in today's world when one of the students came up to me and said, I, can't, I simply can't do this. I said, what, you can't do it? No, I can't do it. I cannot do it. And this is what he said to me. He said, I wish you had told us not to eat for 48 hours. That would be easier than for me not to be connected with technology for 48 hours. So you want to just find ways and live into that. Now, this is what I would say. um, The last word I want to say, because I want to turn it over to, to ultimately Andrew as we're winding down. But you, you, do, you need to develop a plan. You need to develop a plan. Uh, you somewhat might even call it a rhythm, a rhythm of life, a plan to say these are the things that I do. And I could tell you what I do. I could tell you the rhythm that I, ha- that I go through. And it's changed over the years. It's not the same rhythm I had 30 years ago as a believer. But you, you need to have a plan, a rhythm that you live into. And you say these are the things that I do on a regular basis. And I do so because I want to create space for God. I want to place myself in a, in a position where God and I can interact for this life in the kingdom. I want to do these things so that I can access more and more of God's grace and power for the things that I feel called to do. And um, won't get into that now, but the, that's I would just leave you with that word is to, as you're leaving here and thinking about all that you're thinking about, just really do think about a plan. And don't make it too ambitious. Don't say, I'm going to read the entire Old Testament in Hebrew by next week. Uh, do what you can, not what you can't, but find things that you think are life-enhancing and encouraging, things you can do, and uh, things you feel some, some calling to do. And develop that plan and, and enlist the help of others to do it. So that's really, I think, what this life in the kingdom is. It's, it's le- learning to live into these rhythms of grace 
so that uh, we can become people that otherwise we couldn't without God's help and God's power. So I've left um, four minutes, based on the clock, for any final questions or thoughts, comments, anything that you would have. Uh, Sorry I didn't leave more time, but um, I definitely want to hear from you. Every conversation I've had during breaks, it's like, wow, these people are, these people are deep in the kingdom. And so it's been fun just to, to hear what you're doing. But, okay, any, any questions or thoughts, comments, anything on your mind or heart? Yeah, Noel, that's, that's, a, that's a big one. Way to, way to close us out with that one. Uh, and, you, yeah, and by the way, you talk funny. Where are you from? What? I'm from Texas. Texas. I knew it. It's a lovely country. Um, well, that's a very big question, and I don't have time to unpack, I think, all that that might mean. But I do want to just say this, and, and maybe this is going to be helpful for maybe another question that didn't get asked, but it's related to that question. That is, I've had people come up to me and they say, um, look, the gospel I was presented with was some version of substitutionary atonement. And that did move me to a decision to accept Jesus as Lord and give thanks for the blood and all that goes with that. And that's, that's my story. Like, that is my story. And I hear what you're saying, and I begin to sort of devalue that or wonder if it's right or wonder if I did it right or if the person preaching was being right, all that stuff, right? Here's what I'd say to this. Look, if that's the door through which you walked into, into a life with God, it's fine because you walked into a life with God and you said Jesus is Lord and that's central to this whole thing. You made a decision that Jesus was worth giving your life to. You may have done it out of some fear or to evade something really bad. I don't know, but you did claim Jesus as Lord. And if that's the door through which you walked into a life with him, be at peace. But don't stay there. Don't stay in a room where it might just be a shaming gospel, where it might just be a, a, a God who's made. That's a, that's a door through which you walked into. But keep walking because there's much more to the atonement. The atonement is so vast and so big. It includes substitution and reconciliation and forgiveness of sins, but it's way bigger than that. It, it goes on and on and on. So don't feel bad about it. And, and don't jump on people who aren't doing it maybe just the right way. But we, we step into it and we have confidence in it. And, and I think that's important to, to note. Um, well, you know, it's interesting when I, I go and I speak in places and I don't often know what's going to catch where, but I, for, for whatever reason, I'm pretty certain that when I walked into uh, penalty substitutionary atonement, I stepped into something <laughs> kind of big in this community. So uh, I didn't know that. Like, I didn't know. But I, uh, for whatever reason, I'm sensing during, during the breaks when people are asking me questions that, that that's an issue, um, and it's an important one. So I want to honor that tradition, that way of framing the gospel. It's not wrong. It just can, it can be shrunken down, and, 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 and reductions can become distortions. So bless you all in that. Bless you all in the work that you're doing. Um, I really do believe that um, things are happening here that will, I will get to discover down the road. Because you know what we sing in that hymn that's not pretty good grace, but amazing grace. We say, 
when we've been there 10,000 years. So I'll have all kinds of time to catch up with you and say, hey, you remember when we were together in October in 2019 and we did that and you were doing that? What happened? Like, what did you do? And it'll be fun. And we'll talk about what, what God did uh, with what you, the vision that you had, the one that you said yes to. So uh, let's, let's close in prayer and then the band's going to come on up. Gracious Abba, we give thanks that uh, you're so near. We don't have to shout to be heard by you. You love us intimately. You're especially fond of us. You just think we're special and amazing, worth dying for. Um, There's no length to which you wouldn't go to be in relationship with us. We thank you that you are that quick-eyed love that smiling asks us, what do you need? We're grateful that that's the life that we're invited into and thankful that there have been so many people who've helped us understand that and and helped us to make those decisions to live into this life. I give thanks for certainly my brothers Andrew and John and all the people that helped to make this event happen. And there are many, many who will go unnamed, but grateful for that, grateful for this time together. So bless all of our thoughts, our ideas, and uh, do great things from this time together. This I pray in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.